Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Good morning. It's Friday the 19th of January here in London. This is the Bloomberg Daybreak Europe podcast. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Coming up today, the Chancellor makes the case for overseas investment in the UK in an increasingly unstable world. The US presses ahead with what it describes as the least bad option in confronting the Houthis as more ships are targeted. Plus, our Head of Economics and Government, Stephanie Flanders, joins us to look back at the week that was in Davos and what we learned from the gathering of business and political leaders. Let's start with a roundup of our top stories. The Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, has told Bloomberg that Britain is a safe harbour for investors in an increasingly unstable world. Speaking on the sidelines of the World Economic Forum in Davos, Hunt also hinted at tax cuts in the March budget as a way to deliver growth. He says the UK is in a good position to capitalise on geopolitical uncertainty elsewhere. I think when investors look around the world at the instability in other countries, the rise of uh, populist far-right parties in many parts of Europe, they say that even with elections, which is right we have because we're a democracy, the UK is actually a very stable long-term bet. And the UK has got uh, stability and the rule of law, and that's very attractive. Jeremy Hunt's efforts to sell the UK were delivered as Google announced it would put a billion dollars into a new data centre near London. The Chancellor's claims of stability come after a fractious time in British politics following the UK's decision to leave the EU. Britain has had five Prime Ministers and seven Finance Ministers in the past eight years. Major British banks are reportedly being summoned to meet the Chancellor because of their low valuations. Sky News says that the government is concerned the weakness uh, at UK bank stocks is holding back wider economic growth in the UK. Executives from HSBC, Barclays, Lloyds, NatWest and Santander are expected to be at the meeting next Tuesday. Houthi militants in Yemen fired missiles at another American-owned commercial vessel in the Red Sea. The news comes as President Joe Biden acknowledged that airstrikes against Houthi militants in Yemen won't deter the group from attacks that have roiled commercial shipping. However, they also say they don't. it doesn't mean the military campaign will stop anytime soon. Bloomberg's Ed Baxter has more. The White House says it is the least bad option that it won't stop Houthi attacks in the Red Sea, but can cut down on Houthi capabilities. Pentagon spokeswoman Sabrina Singh says the U.S. is not at war. This is limited. Destroy missiles that could be launched and that we're preparing to launch either towards U.S. Navy ships that are in the region, that are in that waterway, or other commercial vessels. The Houthis say the two are indeed in direct conflict and will not stop the attacks. Ed Baxter, Bloomberg Radio. 
Israel's Prime Minister has vowed to control security in Gaza after the war. In a clear snub to the wishes of its closest ally, the United States, speaking to journalists, Benjamin Netanyahu said that Israel would accept a Gaza civil authority running the territory, but indicated that he wouldn't accept the Palestinian Authority doing this. In any future arrangement, settlement or no settlement, Israel needs security control over all territory west of Jordan. This is a necessary condition and it collides with the idea of sovereignty. What can you do? I tell this truth to our American friends and I also stop the attempt to impose a reality on us that would harm Israel's security. The Prime Minister needs to be capable of saying no to our friends, saying no when necessary and saying yes when possible. Netanyahu's comments come after the U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and other U.S. officials said that lasting peace wouldn't be possible without an eventual state for Palestinians. The Palestinian Prime Minister Mahmoud Steyer has told Bloomberg that the Palestinian Authority has been working with U.S. officials on a plan to govern Gaza after the conflict ends. U.S. regulators are planning to require banks to tap the Fed's discount window at least once a year. More from Bloomberg's Doug Kresner. The proposed requirement aims to reduce the stigma of borrowing from the window. In the past, it's been construed as a sign of weakness. Over the past two decades, the Fed has worked to change that perception, but it's been tough to shake. At the same time, regulators want banks to use the window once a year to ensure banks are ready for troubled times. Last year, during the regional banking crisis, it was apparent that several lenders were not even set up to quickly borrow from the discount window, even in a pinch. In New York, I'm Doug Krisner, Bloomberg Radio. The U.S. Congress has passed a temporary spending bill to avert a partial government shutdown this weekend. The measure would fund American agencies until March. Republican Congressman Bob Good chairs the party's Freedom Caucus, who tried to block the bill. We have the majority in one half of the legislative branch. When will that begin to account for something? When will that begin to matter for something? When you have the majority in one branch or one house of one branch, shouldn't you get half of what your policy priorities are? Nearly half of House Republicans voted with good against the measure, whilst Democrats overwhelmingly supported it. The legislation uh, uh, will be sent to Joe Biden, who plans to sign it, but urged Congress to find a more long-term solution to financing the government. JP Morgan Chase has raised CEO Jamie Dimon's pay by 4.3% to $36 million in 2023. The bumper pay packet came as the bank recorded the largest profit in the history of American banking. The lender raked in close to $50 billion last year as it benefited from Fed rate hikes and the purchase of First Republic Bank. Diamond, who's already a billionaire, has now been in the role for 18 years and has long quipped that he plans to stay in the post for five more years, no matter when he's asked. Now, in a moment, we'll bring you more from our interview with the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, and a look back at the week in Davos. But first, a piece of Bloomberg intelligence research that caught my eye this morning. Given that it is a Friday and thus the day that you can feel the wind blowing through the city a little more easily as it's that much <laughs> less crowded, this is a look at how buy-side traders are 
where they are on flexible working, mm. on working from home. So this is a piece of intelligence looking uh, at the US, but I think pretty um, interesting to mirror what we're seeing elsewhere as well, that the three days in the office is now the norm for 40% of buy-side traders 40%. I'm, in the US. I'm well, that's quite the, surprised at that, that it's so many people are working two days a week from home. Exactly, and that's that was the most popular option of the list of mm. kind of one to five days or fully remote. The one in five traders are in the office full-time, um, those working, though, Asian trading hours, so those will be working overnight in mm. the US, they're much more likely to have a fully remote option. And this is actually a bit of a shift that the industry is seeing, is instead of um, banks perhaps employing people in financial centres in Asia to be trading those markets, they're able to use a lot more people who are working in the US to trade those markets because they can offer them the option of working fully remotely. Yeah, so that is but, something But that an is, overnight shift, yeah. yeah. Interesting. Okay, I like that. Uh, all the insider industry information on what people are doing. Let's bring you more now from our interview with the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, who's been speaking to Bloomberg at the World Economic Forum in Davos. He repeated his hope that he can cut taxes in the budget on March 6th and that he believes the UK is now a stable, long-term bet for investors. Jeremy Hunt has been speaking to Bloomberg's Francine Lacqua. What I'm detecting here in Davos is a recognition that the UK has become one of the great technology centres of the world. It's now the third largest tech economy after the United States and China, double the size of anywhere else in Europe. And of course, companies like Google are reflecting that in their investments. And this is a billion dollars to improve their data processing. It means that people who use Google facilities like Gmail will get a faster service. Data is the kind of the wiring of the internet. If you don't store it effectively, um, the internet grinds to a halt. So it's it's an example of the kind of deals that I'm here talking about the whole time as people look at the UK and they say, this is... Uh, Europe's Silicon Valley, and it's well on the way to becoming the world's next big tech centre. But, uh, Chancellor, is this because they see opportunities in the UK or because they look at the rest of the world, they look at conflicts, they look at Europe, and they think it's a bit of a mess? Well, I think it's a combination. The UK has got uh, stability and the rule of law, and that's very attractive to international investors. But it's also got two things that virtually nowhere else has outside the United States, the biggest financial services sector. So these small businesses that get off the ground can get the backing they need to grow. And that is very interesting to companies like Google and Microsoft. Um, But it's also got, outside the United States, the world's most respected universities, four of the world's top 20 universities. So the new ideas that are, for example, creating the new medicines of the future, uh, a lot of that is happening in the UK, and that makes it a very exciting place to invest. But, Chancellor, at the same time, there are so many questions. I mean, there, there was so much turbulence in the UK economy because of politics. We're now a little bit more stable, but we're looking at elections, and your party is far behind. What promises do you give to investors now? Well, I think when investors look around the world at the instability in other countries, the rise of uh, populist far-right parties in many parts of Europe, they say that even with elections, which is right we have because we're a democracy, the UK is actually a very stable long-term bet. And what they're also seeing is something they haven't seen before, which is that the technology sector is now so vibrant in the UK that they can't really afford not to be there. Will you see, will you tell actually investors that we'll see a corporation tax cut? 
Well, they've already seen a huge corporation tax cut because in the autumn statement I introduced full expensing of capital allowances, which means for investors investing capital, they get a 25% discount off their corporation tax bill, which is more attractive than any other major country. So we will continue to do everything we can to get the tax burden down. And that is, you know, a choice we have as a country because other parties would increase the tax burden, they'd increase borrowing. We think the way we grow the economy is by reducing taxes, making them more competitive. But will that happen in the next um, budget statement? And is that going to be the, the next, the, the last financial event before the election? Well, Fran, it's uh, early days for the budget. It's on March the 6th. I haven't seen the final figures from the Office for Budget Responsibility, so I don't know uh, the headroom that I'm going to have to play with. But what I can tell you is what I want to do, because I look around the world and I see that North America, Asia, where generally countries have lower taxes than Europe, they're growing faster. In Europe, where our taxes tend to be higher, we're growing more slowly. So if I can, I want to reduce the tax burden and make the UK more competitive, more dynamic, more vibrant. Will you deliver a Nottingham statement or will we have an election before then? Well, the timing of the election, I wish I could tell you, and it's not that I'm hiding, I just don't know. This is a decision for the Prime Minister. Um, what I have to do as Chancellor is make sure that I set the economy on the right track because the main reason people vote Conservative is because they trust us with the economy and they can look at Rishi Sunak's record, my record, they can see we brought inflation down from 11.1% to 4%. Uh, so far we've avoided a recession even though many people predicted we'd get one um, and they can see tremendous prospects for the future. I mean, Your party was all, not always stable but when you look at instability across the world and this is conflicts, this is concerns with uh, the, the price of oil and of course what we're seeing in the Middle East and Ukraine do you worry that it's going to be a hard, very difficult economy this year? Well, I think um, I worry about the world. Yes, I don't think we've seen it this unstable for a very long time. And the UK, of course, has a very important role in protecting uh, global stability, working alongside our allies like the United States. Uh, and of course, uh, if you're responsible for a country's economy, uh, you have to keep a very careful eye on what's happening in places like the Red Sea. Um, but what I would say is that the, the things that will really help to do that, bring down inflation, bring down borrowing, keep public spending under, the control, under control, that will make the economy resilient for whatever shocks might be around the corner. Final question. You are behind in the polls. An election is close, 20 points behind. Can you really make that up? Um, I believe we can um, because, um, you know, politics has never been more volatile. And in the end, when people see an economy that has weathered a pandemic, weathered uh, the cost of, cost of living crisis, uh, the very many shocks and challenges we've had, and we, when they see that actually our potential is huge despite all those challenges, I think they'll understand the value of a Conservative government. That was the Chancellor Jeremy Hunt speaking to Bloomberg's Francine Lacqua in Davos. The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City. Cutter and premier sponsor QNB. 
Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com. Now, the World Economic Forum wraps up its meetings today in Davos. Bloomberg's Head of Economics and Government, Stephanie Flanders, has been in Switzerland all of this week and she joins us now to discuss. Stephanie, good morning. Good morning. Uh, there seem to be two competing narratives at Davos. On the one hand, you know, rising geopolitical tension, what the Chancellor was talking about just there. On the other hand, an economy globally, perhaps, that is surprisingly resilient. Which one do you think won out? You know, it's, it's funny, Carolyn. I think when you people arrived, I think they thought they were going to spend all week talking about geopolitics. And there's obviously plenty uh, to discuss. And uh, we've had, we've got all this election coming down the track. So there's kind of what people called here the return of the political, um, as well as the sort of hot wars in uh, Ukraine and lots of focus on the Middle East, obviously. Um, but yeah, you couldn't sort of help feeling that despite all of that, over the course of a few days, you know, deals were being done and there was this sort of fe- creeping feeling of having dodged a bullet. You know, that if you if you look at what forecasts, any kind of consensus forecasts and economic models would have predicted to be the result of the kind of interest rate increases that we've seen in most of the developed economies over the last year, year and a half, you know, all of the economies should have shrunk by now. They should have had a recession. We certainly should have been looking down the barrel of a recession. UK... For example, sort of, if you just look at how far interest rates have gone up, should have had a recession shrinking by three and a half percent. Similar numbers for the Europe. So we're sort of looking around. Although growth is not looking great for this year, um, it looks at if if it forecasts or even sort of roughly right for inflation, we've managed to bring down what could have been a seventy style inflation problem without an eighty style recession. And it was, you know, that. I think was in the end the feeling that that won out. Uh, even though you know many of us might think that was a little bit wishful thinking, and certainly if you look at the stock market, you might the U.S. stock market, you might think that is a little bit Goldilocks scenario. Central to the conversation about what happens next, of course, is interest rate cuts. We did hear from a rake of central bankers this week as well. Did they manage to convey the message that the markets are, if you'll pardon the pun, way over their skis on rate cut forecasts? Well, we heard, I mean, uh, Christine Lagarde obviously spoke to Francine uh, earlier in the week and we we did, you know, we got we got some news in the sense, you know, and she, she was, I, I think, surprisingly happy to talk about the likelihood of uh, of an interest rate cut from the European Central Bank in the summer. Um, others were sort of pushing back a little bit. Uh, they certainly was not what not wanting to be pushed um, on, on timings, which is, you know, predictable. We, we would always have that. But yeah, I'm sure as they look looking at uh, particularly how the how the U.S. Um, stocks have performed in the last few months, you know, have to be a little bit nervous that that, that something here is going to is going to have to to break in this in this very golden scenario because you know either that if inflation ends up being higher um, than than we expect and turns out to be more of a problem, well, they may have to, they have the scenario of maybe having to backtrack, which they really don't want to do after they start reducing rates. And, you know, of course, the other possibility is that we still have a lot of the impact of higher interest rates yet to come mm. and the economy weakens unexpectedly. Although I think that the, the focus on that is definitely less than it was. Yeah. Although, of course, this year is the year of elections in many parts of the world. And actually going into this week, the World Economic Forum was highlighting misinformation and disinformation 
as being the biggest risk this year. From the conversations that you've had, what actually were the risks that people were most worried about, do you think? Yeah, it was more, I think, that AI, which I'm sure you would have heard lots about from, from lots of people, um, there was definitely a shift on that because in the past, you know, it's not something that we haven't talked about here in Davos, um, the, you know, the likes of McKinsey and, you know, a lot of academics have often been here talking about the impact of machine learning and digitalization and AI on um, the economy. But that was kind of it. We kind of knew what AI was. And the question was, you know, how are we going to manage the risks and how is it going to affect jobs and business models? There's all of that is obviously now kind of accelerated because of just the sheer pace of change in the last year. But also, I think the more that people here are talking to those who are at the front line of this and these developments, kind of realizing that even the experts don't quite understand how uh, these models have progressed as far as they have as quickly as they have. You know, you have the likes of Bill Gates saying, you know, that he didn't really understand how ChatGPT worked as well as it did. And I've heard that from a lot of people. And of course, it makes you slightly nervous. It's fine if the, mm-hmm. if the lay people don't quite understand how the system works. That's one thing. But it's the, it's the people at the heart of this revolution don't really, are rather kind of uh, befu- you know, befuddled and, and confused about why they're able to do the things they can do. Then that makes you even more concerned about um, the potential of, you know, its effect on war, its effect on, um, you know, the practice of warfare and certainly the practice of political uh, conflict because um, mm-hmm. even the people closest to it just don't understand its power. Stephanie, conversations in Davos are often criticised for being sort of lofty and big picture and, and not connected to the reality people are experiencing. I, I wonder what your impression of that was this year, given the particular economic moment that we're in, were people speaking in a way that was grounded in the reality of, of what the economic situation is? Well, look, I think it depends. I think if you're saying, is it grounded in the reality of what it's like to be in um, the north of England, still do, trying to deal with a massive increase in the cost of living and not necessarily finding that wages are keeping up? Clearly not. And I suspect, you know, it never has been <laughs> in relation to that. But I tell you one thing that, you know, for those who kind of spend their time really worried about the world and worried about, um, the you know the ch- challenge of of deglobalization and fragmentation and 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 and, po- and populism and all of these things, you know there's an awful increasing number of participants here and now from uh, emerging market economies and parts of the world that actually are feeling like they're doing pretty well. You know as we've talked about and we've done research from Bloomberg Economics, there are these connector economies that are actually doing well out of fragmentation. India is doing fantastically well. Every the last few years, the Indian participants here have always been incredibly upbeat. Um, but we also have you know Mexicans. Even the Argentine president was here, and although you know he's a he's a controversial figure, but actually a lot of people were saying you know maybe Argentina was going to have its moment as well as he does all these big reforms. Um, lots of people from the 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 Gulf, UAE, doing deals, feeling you know not constantly worried about whether or not Donald Trump gets elected. So for me, it's not as if it, it's not really talking to the or the man on the street, if you like, in the US or, or Europe. But I think it sort of reminded us that lots of the world are not feeling quite so gloomy. 
This is Bloomberg Daybreak Europe, your morning brief on the stories making news from London to Wall Street and beyond. Look for us on your podcast feed every morning on Apple, Spotify and anywhere else you get your podcasts. You can also listen live each morning on London DAB Radio, the Bloomberg Business app and Bloomberg.com. Our flagship New York station is also available on your Amazon Alexa devices. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Join us again tomorrow morning for all the news you need to start your day, right here on Bloomberg Daybreak Europe. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.